Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. A new report on inflation and the evidence points to high corporate profits. We'll run down the research today on the show. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the latest from the United Auto Workers. Welcome to the Thursday, February 1st edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Eddie Hall will be our first guest on the show today. Eddie is the national president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, which is a division of the Rail Conference of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and they have over 51,000 members. A little background on Ed. His career began in 1995 when he was hired out of the former Southern Pacific Railroad, which is now Union Pacific in El Paso, Texas. He earned promotion to locomotive engineer in 1998 after relocating to Tucson and today he remains a proud member of that local that's a division 28 Eddie is going to talk about what happened almost one year ago and that's East Palestine Ohio we're going to spend a whole segment on that what happened why it happened why it should not happen again and there's a lot of problems there's problems with the legislation that they're trying to get passed through Congress. That's going to take a whole lot more time. But a uh, big part of this is the length of trains. I didn't realize how long these trains are today and what they are carrying on those trains. We're also get, going to get into a precision scheduled railroading, which is something that the union does not like. We'll also touch on paid sick leave. And you know, I'll tell you, they did a great job on that last year. Because of their efforts, there's 19,000 members in the BLET that have paid sick leave because of the union. So uh, Eddie Hall will be our first guest. Then we're going to go to the state of Kentucky and join Tim Smith. Now, Tim is the director of Region 8 of the United Auto Workers, and he's had that position for about, uh, well, two and a half years. He was elected director during the general election for the International executive board in November of 2022. He uh, started his career in the UAW in the late 80s, and he's going to touch on that because he didn't have uh, a union reference in his family, but he learned very quickly the importance of having a union. And we're primarily going to talk about what the UAW is in the South. As you know, we've got a lot of right-to-work states that don't like unions. Well, right now, right now, as we speak, over 10,000 auto workers across 13 non-union companies have signed union cards with the UAW. And this all comes after the stand-up strike victory last year with the big three. Sean Fain said, look, we got some good contracts here. There's more auto workers that deserve good contracts. We're talking Volkswagen, Mercedes, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Volvo, Tesla, Nissan, BMW, Subaru. Mazda, Rivian, Lucid. I'll tell you, UAW is doing a great job on this. Just uh, check out their website for complete updates. 
UAW.org. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. A new report has come out claiming resounding evidence showing that high corporate profits are a main driver of inflation and Companies continue to keep prices high even as their costs have gone down. This report is compiled by Groundwork Collaborative. They're a think tank. They found that corporate profits accounted for about 53% of inflation during last year's second and third quarters. Profits drove just 11% of price growth in the 40 years prior to the pandemic. Okay, prior to That would be 2020. Prices for consumers rose by 3.4% over the past year, but input costs for producers increased by just 1%. Liz Pencotti is one of the advisors that did the work for Groundwork Collaborative, and she says costs have come down dramatically while corporations were quick to pass on their increased costs to consumers. They are surprisingly less quick to pass on their savings to consumers. Since pandemic inflation spiked in 2021, a high-stakes debate has played out about its sources. Many economists, progressive economists, pointed to corporate profits or greedflation. That's something the AFL-CIO picked up on. They also brought up supply chain issues, things like that. Well, The report's authors scoured corporate earnings calls and found executives bragging to shareholders about keeping prices high and widening profit margins as input costs came down. Now, the findings come as the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates to their highest point in 20 years. Now, yesterday they met and they said, well, we're still going to stay the course right now. We're not going to raise them. We're not going to lower them. Prices rose in 2021 as labor costs jumped and supply chains shocked from the pandemic and the Ukraine war. You put all that together and things got a bit crazy. Those issues have in many cases have been fully sorted out or are easing and the labor market has stabilized. According to the report, nearly 60% of the drop in key goods and services inputs was driven by large declines in energy costs like jet fuel, diesel fuel, while transportation and warehousing costs have fallen by nearly 4% since they peaked in June of 2022. Still, though, prices remain high, and consumers, you and I, are still paying about 25% more for groceries. The research also points out the uh, paper zooms in the diaper industry, of which Procter & Gamble and Kimberly Clark control 70% of the domestic market. Get this, diaper prices have increased by more than 30% since 2019 on average, $16.50 to nearly $22. The rise was partly driven by an increase in commodities like wood pulp, a major component of diapers. Still, diaper prices have not come down with lower costs, the authors say. Groundwork examined earnings calls and found executives at both companies boasting of widening profit margins as input costs decrease. So there you have it. They've made a lot of money. They're still making a lot of money, and they're not passing off any savings to consumers. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Eddie Hall on behalf of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen coming up next. This 
is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Are you looking for a new health care partner for your union members? Let Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield be your champion, making sure your members live their healthiest lives now more than ever. It's important to have a partner you can trust, one who understands the unique challenges unions face. Anthem provides a variety of options to meet your organization's needs and helps you control costs without sacrificing quality of care. For more information, visit anthem.com slash labor and trust. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. And that would be awfpodcast.com, awfpodcast.com. Let's go to line number one. Welcome a newcomer to the show. I've been tracking this guy for a while. His name is Eddie Hall. For 28 years, Eddie Hall worked on the rails, and as recently as December of 2022, he was guiding trains as long as three miles in length. This was across the southwestern United States as an engineer for the Union Pacific Railroad. Well, that year, there was an election, and on January 1st of 2023, he became president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, which, by the way, is a division of the Rail Conference of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Well, we have a lot to talk about with Eddie Hall. I want to talk about paid sick leave. There was a lot of accomplishments on that in the past year, rail safety. But first and foremost, we have to talk about what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, almost one year ago, February 3rd, 2023, a train derailment that attracted national and international attention. Eddie Hall, you were on the job as president for a little over a month when that happened. Take me back to that time. This this really filled your plate, didn't it? It, it really did. And at the time, my main concern was the crews that were out there uh, and what they were exposed to and them having the resources they needed uh, to basically get emergency responders out there at the time. Uh, 
you know, with all the all the cuts because of precision railroading, uh, you're going to have accidents like this. Uh, they were very lucky that it didn't happen in a bigger city like Cleveland. Uh, that train, my, my understanding, had been through Cleveland uh, not long before it got out to East Palestine. Um, and with that, there, we, we've had some accomplishments kind of that, that have come from that. Uh, uh, and I continue to work with, like, Senator Brown and Senator Vance, who introduced the Rail Safety Bill of 2023 back then. Uh, mm -hmm. It is stalled in Congress, but but BLET, we continue to push for an up or down vote on that, and that's one of the things that that I want to show. I want the I want the public to understand that these these elections that are coming up are very important, and that's why I feel we need to have an up or down vote on rail safety, uh, so we can point out the senators that are looking out for the public's interest and those that are not concerned with where the public is when it comes to rail safety. Uh, so yeah, I did I did have a full plate back then, and I still do. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's still uh, a lot of investigating going on. Can you, can you fill me in? I, I mean, are we making some progress on that investigation to your knowledge? See, and we are party, part, party to the investigation. So I can't give you too much detail, uh, mm -hmm. but they, they know what happened. Uh, you know, they, there are detectors out there, uh, that tell you what's going on with the train, uh, there with, with precision railroading, they don't inspect trains like they used to. Uh, because they're cutting back on staff, so they now depend on technology uh, with these wayside detectors. And if a wayside detector doesn't catch that there's a problem with the cars out there or the locomotives out there, uh, it could go on for several several miles, and then you have an accident like this because the detectors, there's no real regulation of where they need to be. Uh, I know on Union Pacific, they're about every 10 to 12 miles, 15 at the most. Um, but that's without these cars being inspected like they should by personnel uh, that can find issues with the wheels or whatever that are going to come up in route. Uh, those detectors that you're depending on, if something happens right after you get over the detector, that's where you have issues. Uh, right. And these are these are things that uh, that the car department who inspects these trains they can pick up just by looking at inspecting these cars. They know there's a problem with that. They know there's a a thin flange which is what holds the wheel uh, on the rail. The flange, they're, they're inside the wheel, and they keep keep you on the tracks. Um, so with persistent schedule railroading and, and the cutbacks that they've had, that's where we come into issues when it comes to rail safety and, and, and what happened in uh, East Palestine. Now, Eddie, your, uh, your career in the railroad started back in uh, 1995. Different time, uh, obviously more regulations, I would assume. Maybe you could speak to what happened in in the years after that th these you, you talked about the inspections here when, when did they start cutting back on all this uh i mean that, that would have started with precision railroading um back in i think it came into play in with union pacific they probably introduced it in 2019 2020 okay. uh and what i guess the short of it is what precision railroading is they want to do more with less and when i say less I'm talking about train, train crews. I'm talking about uh, people that maintain the track, people that maintain the cars, people that maintain the signals. They're getting rid of personnel, and so they're spending less money on employees. They're spending less money on equipment, uh, maintaining the equipment because these, these cars are not getting inspected. They're not finding the issues that they should be, that, that normally would be found when you have all the people. But as they continue to cut back, now people are on timelines, car departments. There's, there's, there's talk out there that 
even though it's not in writing, that a car, to, a car inspector has about a minute to a minute and a half to, to inspect every car when they come in for a brake test. That's not enough time. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, over the years, we even back then when conductors do some testing, you walk the entire train uh, before it departed the terminal. They don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, they'll do it with a vehicle, and they're, they have less time to inspect the car. There's things that they miss because they're not walking there. The, uh, the way the braking system works on a train, it works on the air. And if you have an air leak somewhere in the train, well, your brakes are not going to work correctly. And a lot of times from a vehicle, you don't pick that up because you don't hear the air leaking out because you're in a vehicle. Even though you, they're out there doing their job, inspecting, there are issues that they, because they can't, they don't take the same amount of time to inspect the equipment out there. Uh, and the equipment's not built for, for, for what they're doing now with precision railroading. I mean, when I started out running trains, we ran trains that were basically between 4,000 and 7,500 feet long. Uh, now those train, trains are, are in 15,000 plus, some up to 18,000 feet long well over three miles uh, long. Um, and then on top of that, because they've cut down on the locomotives on each train uh, and making them bigger, back then you used to have basically horsepower per ton is what we called it. And you rough, your, your train roughly was about 3.5 horsepower per ton back then, and no less than 2.5. So when you go up a 1% grade, you were going 35 miles an hour. Um, now, with the way they run precision railroading, you have 0 0.08 tons uh, per horsepower. So you, you're, you're cresting a grade or, or climbing a hill at about eight miles an hour. Uh, so if you're going 10 miles to get up and over a hill, that's well over an hour. And that, where that comes into play is, well, now you have the crew that's getting fatigued because they're taking so long to get these trains over the road. So that has changed just because of the, the reduction in power so they can save money and not have as many locomotives out there uh, that they have to maintain. So that comes into play. Uh, an engineer back then, when I when I used to run a train, I could feel that train. I ran by the seat of my pants. That's what it was. You ran a train at 70 miles an hour, and you could feel exactly what was happening in that train just by sitting in the seat. And you knew if something was wrong before any detector went off or anything else. You know, if you if that train didn't tug on you right, you knew something was going on, and you were able to stop, get it inspected by the conductor. That's no longer there. These trains are so long, 15,000 feet, 18,000 feet. You don't feel what's going on at the rear, and a lot of times you lose communication with what we call an EOT, which is a, a rear-end device at the rear of that train, that at least tells you if you have an air going all the way through the train, and that your train is all together. Uh, but sometimes with the length of these trains, you lose the communication there. Um, so, so much, so much in, in cutting expenses and cost, uh, it really makes the railroad industry very unsafe. And when it comes to it, it's about public safety, and, and that's what uh, the railroad industry is not looking at, how safe it is to be, have these trains out there. It sounds like an accident waiting to happen, and, and I'm not surprised that there's, uh, that there's so many. In fact, isn't there a ridiculous number? You've been tracking these, these derailments since they've been adding length to these trains, haven't you? Well, we do, tra we do track them. I don't have specific numbers, but basically you have three derailments a day. You have well over 1,000 throughout the country. Some of them are bigger than others, and those are the ones that, that, that are noticed and that the public is aware of. But I know we had one uh, last year that got away in California. 
uh, where the train uh, got away from the crew, and I think it picked up, it was in excess of 130, 40 miles an hour before it derailed. But we didn't hear about that on the East Coast uh, because there was so much other stuff in the news. So the public's not always aware of these accidents that happen every day. Uh, they're very dangerous. Uh, some of them have to do with uh, remote control operators. That's another problem with precision schedule railroading. It was kind of brought in before, but they've, they've expanded on it where at least you had two, two men on these control boxes and they were within the confines of the yard. And when they're in the yard, they're, they're protected because you have derail protection that doesn't let that train out of the yard. That's no longer the case. Uh, you have Union Pacific that are taking trains outside the, the yard in Houston, Denver, Tucson, where I'm from. Uh, and these, these operators are not in the seat of the locomotive. So they really don't have any feel, I'm going back to feel, of what's going on with that train. Uh, and that train could get away from them, especially if that air that I spoke about earlier where they control the brakes, if they lose the air um, or if they use too much air and release it and it doesn't have time to build back up, uh, then you have no brakes. Uh, and these guys are not in the seat to take care of business because they don't have qualified locomotive engineers on these remote control trains. But that's all part of, of uh, this precision railroading and trying to cut back to one-man crews on, on precision railroading with these uh, remote control operators. Uh, so there's a lot of issues out there, and, and I think the public is not aware how dangerous these remote control trains are and what PSR is, is putting into play in their communities. Uh, so we try and we do our best to inform the, the, the public, the general public, of what's going on with railroad. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm here talking to you today, because I, I want the public to understand what's happening in the railroad industry and how dangerous it's becoming. Yeah, it's dangerous to the workers and dangerous to the communities, as in East Palestine, Ohio. Eddie Hall joining us on our live line today is national president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. Do check out their website, blet.org, blet.org. We'll continue with Eddie right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel 
for more information. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to our live line and rejoin Eddie Hall. Eddie is the national president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trayman. Forgot to mention, they're 51,500 strong, and again, they are a division of the Rail Conference of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. We've been talking about the East Palestine situation, which uh, happened almost a year ago, and uh, the fact that we have to do a way better job on rail safety. And you were telling me, Eddie, in the first uh, segment how the trains have just uh, been adding length over the years. You said they were like 4,000, 5,000. You started in the industry back in the mid-'90s. Then they went to 7,500 feet. Now they're at 15,000 feet, which is three miles long. Are they thinking about going longer? Are, are they thinking about going up to four miles long? <laughs> Do you know anything no, about that? I, I, and I really, I really can't speak for what, what the CEOs are thinking, but I can tell you that, that at, at 18,000 feet or 15,000 feet, these trains are too long. They're not safe. So somehow we need to get the message to the CEOs and I'm talking about Union Pacific, BNSF, Norfolk Southern, uh, CSX, that this train link uh, where they're cutting costs by, by lowering the amount of crews to get the, the freight over the road is not working, and it puts the public in danger, especially when you have even the, even the trains that are, that are only 10 or 12,000 feet. However, they may have 20,000 tons of freight, and a lot of that freight might be uh, uh, liquid petroleum, maybe uh, fertilizer. Uh, different hazmat materials that are on these trains. Um, and the, the equipment is not built. It's, it's really not built to handle 20,000 tons of, of stress because the way these things are, are coupled together, um, they're, they're, the knuckles, what they call it, and these knuckles weigh 80 pounds, and yet somewhere along that train ride, you're going to put 20,000 tons of stress on an 80-pound piece of iron. And they, they break, they crack. Uh, and that's where you have these split in twos that the train comes in, in two pieces and sometimes two or three pieces because they could break several places once you break one knuckle. But that gives you there's, – there's a better risk, I guess, of going on the ground and having some type of derailment when these trains come in two. Uh, and that's a lot of it. These, this, the, uh, the equipment is not built uh, for the kind of tonnage that you're hauling around nowadays. Uh, they, they, uh, they do put locomotives in the middle of a train or at the end. However, somewhere during that trip, that knuckle is going to get 20,000 tons of force pulling back on it, and that's where you have issues at. Um, so 
you know, the, the, they don't need to go any longer when it comes to training length. They actually need to shorten training length uh, and come down to a reasonable amount. I understand that the carriers need to make a profit. And by doing that, our, we have employees. But cutting uh, employees down to bare minimum and maintenance down to bare minimum does not work for public safety when it comes down to it, Flash. You mentioned their profits. Well, I know they're making a lot of money, Eddie. I've talked about that on the show many, many times. Yeah, they're, they're doing very, very well financially. But let's talk about legislation here. I know there's some legislation, and it's got bipartisan support. Will that legislation up till now, I don't know, you know how legislation changes. I'm mm-hmm. just wondering, is it going to address the issues that we're talking about on the show today, Eddie? Well, I'll tell you. What you're talking about is the uh, is Senator Brown and Vance, uh, who introduced introduced the Rail Safety Act of 2023, um, and they do have bipartisan support of it. However, we back that bill. A lot of it is because it 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 um, the thing that comes into play is two man crews. Uh, so you have both a qualified engineer and a qualified conductor on there. There are a lot of other things that come into play, like the wayside detectors. But there's a lot more in that bill that that we need that we're not there yet. However, it is kind of stalled in the Senate right now. And that's one of the things that, that I push is we need to have an up or down vote on that bill because the public needs to be aware of which senators and representatives are looking out for their best interest and not looking out for business's best interest because this is all about rail safety. And the reason this thing came up is because of East Palestine and the derailment there and the damage that was caused to that small community. And we don't need that to happen again. But the way these trains are built and what's going on, if we don't get some rail safety legislation, we're going to have the same thing happen again. And I hope it's not in the city where people lose their lives because that's what's going to happen. With all the chemicals and everything that we carry on these trains, they need to be safe. And the railroads need to understand that by cutting costs, that doesn't make it safe. Uh, it doesn't. The other thing that it doesn't do is, the customer, the customers do not get their their product, whatever they're shipping, it's always delayed because of these trains. Uh, they talk about they handle the cars less, and that helps speed up. But when your train has now gone from 70 miles an hour, and it's now doing 25 and 30 miles an hour for 300 miles, these trains and these cars are staying out there longer. They're not getting to the customers. So, But when it comes to rail safety, I, want, I really want to get back on that. We need both regulation and legislation that pushes rail safety uh, to look out for the, for the general public. Um, so I'm hoping that we do get an up or down vote in 2024 for the, uh, for the Vance Brown bill uh, that they do have right now. All right, let's switch gears here. I want to talk about paid sick leave and you definitely made some strides on that. And we, I recall doing the show, this was in November of 2022. There was talk of a possible strike because the railroads weren't given in. But slowly but surely, and this has a lot to do with your union and the others. I mean, there's a lot of rail unions involved in this. They push really hard, and uh, we're making some progress. Uh, can you run down uh, where we are on that issue right now, Ed? Well, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you first. Uh, the, peop- the public needs to understand that Railroad employees, they live, they live a different life. They work 24-7, and a lot of times they only have 10 hours off between calls. They spend more time at their away-from-home terminal, terminal than they do at home. Um, you know, you get home, you just got off a train for 12 hours. Sometimes you're dead on the law out there, and you don't get back to the terminal for 15, 17 hours. 
and then you get to go home, you're there for 10 and the phone's ringing in 10 hours, they want you on duty in 12, and then you go back and you, and you spend more time away from home. Uh, and then on top of that, if you try to take a day off, you have uh, uh, punitive attendance policies that these carriers have put into place. Now, we have made some strides on that when it comes to the attendance policies and time off. So we have reached agreements with Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, BNSF, and this does allow for time off and sick time. Uh, these carriers, uh, we've negotiated most of them with five, five sick days off, which they can take off if they have a doctor's appointment or a family member or stay home and take care of a sick child. Before, you couldn't do this. I mean, if you had a doctor's appointment at 2 in the afternoon uh, because of the attendance policies and you went there and you, you spent two or three hours there and then you got home and the phone might be ringing at 6 o'clock to be at work at 8 and work all night, all night long. So, you know, you could be up for 30, 40 hours sometimes. Uh, and I've been there. I've been there where, you, where I've been up for over 30 hours because I was up the whole day, had something I had to get done, like a doctor's visit or something, um, and then called to work, work all night, die on the law out there, and, you know, you're not in for 15, 17 hours. So we've made some great strides with this, but we're still, I tell you, we're still working because you got uh, Joe Heinrichs, with the CEO of CSX, uh, he's he's one of the guys that I've, we've had discussions with, but he needs to put his money where his mouth is because he has yet to come to terms on sick time. Uh, CSX, one of the things that they want, they want some type of value. They want us to give something up. What they don't understand is by, by giving their employees sick time and giving them a, a way to take off and take care of things like that with the family and whatnot, what the value is that they have – employees that are happy to come to work and when they come to work they show pride that they work for this company and they're, they're ready to do their job when they can do the, go to work but by not giving them the opportunity to take off sick you keep them up all day and then you send them to work all night you know that employee is not happy when something like that comes up or when he's got a sick child at home or she's got a sick child at home because we have locomotive engineers and trainmen that are that are women that are out there and they have children but mm -hmm. yet CSX won't come to terms on that, and we're still working with uh, CN and CP, who we don't have agreements with. But we, we have come to, to agreements with, like I said, BNSF, Union Pacific, and NS, and I thank them for that. And their employees appreciate it. They appreciate what coming, coming to agreement with us on sick time. Well, Eddie, we'll stay on this issue here. It's good to hear that some companies saw the light on this. You mentioned uh, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, and BNSF, but uh, CSX, and you mentioned a couple of others that are not uh, – not realizing the importance of getting time off when you're sick. I mean, come on, you get sick. I mean, it's, it, it happens. We got to, we got to move the needle in the right direction on that. One more question here. I understand that there's a shortage of workers and probably people listening to this interview are scratching their heads. I don't know if I want to work on the railroad, but how are we doing? Because I know we lost some, some workers over the year and I know the pandemic had something to do with that, but uh, where do we stand right now, Eddie? I mean, our, our membership is going up as as, uh, as uh, locomotive engineers, and that has been a lot to do with agreements that we we come into with, uh, like Union Pacific. One of the uh, the agreements that we have with Union Pacific, they will now, and this is still being it's in the process where they're implementing this agreement, but they'll have regular days off. So. Um, Say on Union Pacific, it's an 11-4, but it's really you work four days, you have a day off. You work four days, you have a day off. You work one one day in town, and then you're going to have four days off. So in doing that, they've had to hire more engineers to cover for the off days. But 
now you have some type of, of quality of life when it comes to it uh, for locomotive engineers on Union Pacific. Uh, BNSF and Norfolk Southern, they have similar agreements, uh, but it gives the employee a chance to actually plan something. In, in railroad life, you don't get to plan anything. I mean, you may have a, uh, a child's birthday coming up on Saturday, but in most cases, you don't know if you're working Saturday or you're going to be home Saturday. You can't plan anything. With these negotiations and agreements that have come from my team, uh, which include my vice president, Mark Wallace, and my secretary treasurer, Dave Estes, to include all the other advisory board members and general chairman out there. They have worked out with these three carriers some good agreements, and because of that, they are having to hire new employees. The, the problem is that a lot of people don't want to go to work for the railroads anymore because of the bad rap they got, but they, they did that to themselves. I'm going yep. to tell you that when I hired out, I went to uh, to my first interview. There were 1,700 people there to, that were looking for a job with the railroad. Nowadays, they have to pay for us for people to not only hire out; they have to give them bonuses to hire out in certain cities. Uh, but they also pay the the employees if they recommend somebody because nobody nobody goes out there and says what a great job this is on the railroad anymore because it's really not. Uh, one of the things that, that is getting a little better is our wages, uh, something that we also negotiated. Uh, but one of the things about the railroad in the past, you were paid for the inconvenience because you were on call 24-7. If you didn't have a vacation, you worked every day until that vacation. Uh, you didn't get to take off any time. So we, a lot of it was being paid for the inconvenience. Those wages are not there anymore. Uh, now, we, we negotiate some good wages, some good contracts, and we continue to push forward to get good agreements for, for our, our membership uh, because the type of work they do where they're never home, they work odd hours, you get a call 7 o'clock at night, you don't get off till the next morning at 7 or 8 o'clock, um, they deserve a fair wage for what they do. Uh, so as those wages increase again, I think they'll do better in the hiring process. I know right now, that it's not as good as a lot of these carriers would like to see because they continue to offer bonuses to hire people. Um, but they are moving in the right direction to hire and get people back on. When it comes to our craft, when it comes to, to locomotive engineers and conductors, they are hiring to get people back on. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for the time and your dedication on this. I could tell you're very, very passionate on this subject, and rightly so. Eddie Hall, National President of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. Do check out their website, blet.org. We're going to stay on this legislation here on America's Workforce. Anything that comes up, I'll tell you, this show is your show as well. We're in the top 1% of all podcasts, and we had an explosive year last year, so let's keep in touch, okay, my brother? All right. I appreciate it, Flash. I appreciate the time. And I hope that we can keep our story out there because it does need to be out there. The general public needs to know what's going on in the railroad industry. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Tim Smith, Region 8 Director for the UAW, is coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America. 
delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. Let's go to line number two right now and welcome a newcomer to the show. I do love new people coming to the show every day here on America's Workforce as we expand our audience. And that would be Mr. Timothy Smith. Tim is the Region 8 Director for the United Auto Workers. He was elected Director of that region during the general election for the International Executive Board in November of 2022, and he's got a long history with the UAW. Tim, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us. And briefly, you could take me back to the 1980s. Now, you grew up, what was a a farm in uh, Franklin, Kentucky, and uh, didn't have... um, much knowledge about unions, but you were a quick learner. Take me back to that time, Tim. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, anytime I can wake up early or stay up late and, uh, and speak about labor and uh, what labor is doing to help workers each and every day, we're excited. And I want all the listeners out there to understand this. That's what we do is in the United Auto Workers. We stand with the worker. We fight for the worker, and not only for the worker, but their families to make their lives better. So it's always exciting to be able to get up and get to speak uh, uh, or stay up late. Uh, so but now I grew up in Russellville, Kentucky, on a small farm with uh, my mom and my grandparents. We raised hogs and tobacco, and uh, uh, fond memories of that. Uh, them days are gone. I still have pictures of my grandparents and us raising hogs, but... 
Uh, and then as I moved on in my career, I went to work in Franklin, Kentucky. It was Seal Power in November the 9th, 1986, and uh, we were employed at will. And then in the uh, mid-90s, uh, we made the decision. Uh, a, a guy made the decision to call the UAW. I'll never forget the night uh, he walked over. He said, Tim, we're going to call the UAW. We've had enough. And I said, let's do it. And the rest is history. Uh, so uh, that was one of the greatest calls we ever made as workers in our plant. We organized, got our first agreement, and our life changed. And then we continued to build uh, on everything in our plant, from working conditions to health and safety to wages to benefits, shift preference, job preference, you name it, it changed our life. So proud day. Well, you got a fiery leader in the UAW by the name of Sean Fain. In fact, I've seen him all over uh, TV here for, uh, for political reasons. I'm not going to get into that, but, uh, uh, congratulations on what you were able with your team led by Sean were able to accomplish with the big three. Now, what we got to do is take that a little bit further. Well, maybe a lot further. And I know you're doing some organizing in the South. Now, Region 8, is that, why don't you explain to our listeners how big Region 8 is, Tim? It, it is the third largest region in all of the UAW. Uh, we actually go from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Delaware, to Miami, to Louisville, Kentucky, to San Antonio. We cover 17 states. That's my region that I'm responsible for. Uh, we have approximately 108 locals, uh, approximately somewhere around 50,000 workers, uh, and around 68, 69,000 uh, uh, retirees in our region. I have about 25 service and reps. We have two offices, one right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and Lebanon, uh, where our main headquarters is, and then sub-regional office in Dallas. And then, But we cannot operate. Let me say this again, without our wonderful clerical that keep us on our path each and every day, myself, my assistant director, George Palmer, and all of our great staff. Uh, we have two CAP reps and one education rep. So we, we are on the ground running every day in, in Region 8. And, Tim, I'm reading here over 10,000 auto workers across 13 non-union companies have now signed union cards with the UAW. And all this has to do with what happened last year with that wonderful contract that uh, you were able to uh, get from the big three. So uh, talk to me about what's going on. And I, I know you're getting some pushback from some elected officials, but uh, why don't you run down this campaign and, and how this is being uh, conducted? Go ahead. I live in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and just a few hours away in Georgetown, Kentucky, is Toyota. Uh, and I want everybody to understand we don't go out searching for plants. Workers come to us, and when they make the calls, just like at the region office every day, our clerical are tracking calls coming in every day saying, workers call, can you please help us? They, they're, they're taking away our insurance benefits. They're taking this away. They're cutting our wages, or they're not giving us wage increases. So uh, when workers call, we go to their aid, and uh, we stand with them and work with them, uh, and that's what we're doing at Toyota. That's what we're doing at Volkswagen in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's what we're doing at Mercedes in Tuscaloosa. Uh, and we're going to continue to do to all in Hyundai, okay, in Montgomery. Uh, huge, huge effort there. Uh, but Rivian, Tesla, you name it, they're all calling for us. And uh, that's what we do is, uh, is auto workers. We're going to stand with them and try to change their lives and change their families' lives. Well, Tim, one governor 
in particular, Kay Ivy out of Alabama, and that's where the Mercedes plant is located. And I know you're you're very very active there. She called the UAW an out of state special interest group, and uh, she went on to say their special interests do not include Alabama or the men and women earning a career in Alabama's automotive industry. I can't believe she said that. Those are pretty powerful words. And uh, I'd like to get your reaction to that. What What's your take on that? Well, you know, she can say all she wants. But again, as I stated a while ago, the Mercedes workers in Tuscaloosa have been reaching out for us for years. But as, as you said earlier in the show, with the great contract we achieved last year with the big three, these workers want that fair shake, okay? They're tired uh, of showing up and working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and not earning a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. And so, uh, you know, she's got a nice check. She's got a nice contract with the state of Alabama and a nice pension, I'm sure, when she retires. But, again, she has an issue with her, her <laughs> the workers in Alabama having that same thing. But let me, let me just say this. She says we're out-of-state special interest. That's not true. In local 1639 Continental uh, Motors uh, down in Mobile, we represent approximately 200 workers there. Local 2083 in Yang Fang in Tuscaloosa, we represent about 60 workers there. And also local 2083 ZF chassis that supplies Mercedes, uh, we represent approximately 150 workers there. And just last year, we were on strike there for about six weeks and achieved a great agreement. So she needs to understand her state a little better. Plus, plus, we got multiple active retiree chapters in the state of Alabama. Uh, that the Ford workers and Chrysler and Siemens and Delphi and GM that that total to around 5,200 retirees that live in that state that that get these pensions and 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 spend their money in in them local towns and shops. So she needs to learn her state a little better. We're, we've been in Alabama. We're going to continue to stay in Alabama, and we're going to win these drives uh, in Alabama to help these workers and, 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 and help them have a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Now, now, Tim, you mentioned a couple of companies here, Volkswagen, Mercedes, Toyota, Honda, Volvo, Tesla, Nissan, BMW. Uh, are they all pretty much, is, is this a, like coordinated across the board uh, are you working harder at one so maybe the others are follow? I, I, I think I'm getting a little bit into your head here or the UAW's head as far as how they're going to organize this. Can you explain that part to us? Well, we got huge campaigns happening in Georgetown right now. And then, uh, you know, really, to answer your question, Volkswagen down in Chattanooga is where we're really steaming it, uh, uh, where things are really rolling. Uh, we got a great, uh, you know, committee down there that's been working for years that's wanting to organize we, but we got organizers on the ground everywhere in the South, it, it, all these facilities. It's just some are moving a little quicker than others. Uh, and the other night I was on a uh, Zoom call with approximately 80, 80-some workers across the country at every one of these companies that you spoke about. And, uh, you know, and I want to make this clear. I understand workers are fearful and get scared. But as my grandfather always told me on that small farm, son, if you believe in something and you want it and it's what's right, then fight for it. Fight for it. Stand up and fight because it's about you. It's about that family. And so the companies are going to come at you very hard to try to scare you with tactics. And another thing, you know, they always want to feed you a hamburger or a hot dog or a sandwich to try to say, hey, just give us another chance. Look, 
when we organize and we have great wages and benefits, you can buy your own pizzas and hot dogs. You don't need them to do that. Yeah, if they want to, you know, occasionally, you know, say thank you for your work and, and the product you put out and, and, and reducing scrap and, and, and having great production, that's fine. But any time you talk about organizing, they want to try to kill that with a hot dog or a hamburger. Uh-huh. <laughs> it always amazes me. But, uh, uh, yeah, we, we got we got drives all across the country, and, and they're going really well. Yeah, yeah. You can keep your damn hot dog, you know. I'll move on. I'll get something healthier anyway. So <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Okay, you, you mentioned Chattanooga. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember what ha- It's 10 years ago, 10 years ago in Volkswagen. And Volkswagen wanted the union with their workers' council. And then every politician lined up and said, oh, no, you can't do this. Uh, and by the way, Volkswagen will then move to Mexico. You, 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 you know that conversation. What is different about Chattanooga now, 10 years later, Tim? Well, uh, a lot of the workforce is turned over. A lot of the workers there see uh, what we just achieved with the big three. And, and they want that same thing for them and their families. Uh, and the work council still stands behind us, and we got a great organizing team on the ground there, along with the VOC there, uh, and we're getting very, very close to making some huge announcements here in the next few weeks to where we stand with that campaign. But I honestly believe we're going to win that there, and when we win, one, the rest of them are going to say, "Hey, we can do this too," and we're ready for that. Now I know Sean Fain is very aggressive on this. Does the UAW have a timetable on this, or is this like a day-by-day operation, Tim? You know, Sean's a good, uh, you know does an amazing job, uh, whether he's on CNN or on on your radio show. But we, as an IEB, stand strong together. Sean and all of us on the IEB stand strong for all of our regions to make sure that we're going to stand with workers and we're going to fight for them and we're going to get them what they deserve: fair days work, fair days pay. But uh, I look forward to the day we win this drive, whether it's at Toyota, Volkswagen, Hyundai. It doesn't matter. Sean will be there with me in my region to shake hands with the workers and congratulate them and then start preparing to bargain a great contract for them and their families. I love it. Tim, you're a great guy. I loved having this conversation. Please stay in touch with us. We are very, very proud of what the UAW has been able to accomplish here. I want to thank you guys for what you do, the media for what you do. We would not be where we are today without the media and your push to get our name and, you know, and, and get out there and let workers hear what's right, okay? So many times they hear the negative of a union. The union is all about you and the workers, okay? Uh, and we're there to assist and help and educate in every way. But I want to thank the media and you for what you do each and every day. Now, there's a guy with a lot of fire in his belly and a long history with the UAW, Tim Smith, Region 8 Director. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, Dorsey Hager of the Central Ohio Building Trades, and it's our first Friday with Fred, Fred Redman of the AFL-CIO. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.